the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back Thursday, May 4th, 2023. I am Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960-602-508960 is the number if you'd like to join the conversation. David Dahl is in our producer's chair, as is his custom. Perhaps it's not enough to say we have a mental health problem or crisis in this country. Perhaps it's not enough to say we have a crime problem or crisis in this country. But what do we say and how do we address it when one of those two problems or crises meets or collides with the other? And psychotic violence takes place with innocents in a captive setting where they are effectively imprisoned. Say as in a school or a public train in New York City. Abe Greenwald paints the typical picture, quote, we've all seen the clip. Someone on the subway harasses other riders. He threatens violence or gropes a female passenger or screams racist slurs. Perhaps he attacks, physically assaulting a strap hanger who's just trying to get from point A to point B. Maybe the guy is high or sick or just depraved. Whatever his issue, he's turned the train into a crime scene. And no one does a thing to stop him except whip out their phones and hit record, close quote. Well, on the F train, someone did something, to borrow from Ilan Omar. A man, a former Marine, did something. And doing something to stop this, in my book, is practically the definition of those first two adjectives, being a man. The Talmud states, where there are no men, be a man. Not be a cameraman. Be a man. Especially where there are no police, where there is no law enforcement, especially as the city has seen a record number of police resignations and is short thousands of cops because of the calls and efforts to defund and demoralize them. And now that man is being called a murderer. Perhaps, though, we should stop listening to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has called him a murderer. And listen to Batya Unger-Sargon, who wrote the following quote. I ride the subway a lot. Not a week goes by that a mentally ill person doesn't get on and terrorize the entire car, especially women, especially Asians. Usually the men just sit there and pretend it's not happening. It's a disgrace that working New Yorkers have to live like this. We don't know enough to judge what happened to Jordan Neely, she writes, but... Lots of people who don't live in New York and lots of people who don't ride the subway have a lot of opinions on this, and they need to take a seat. It's working-class New Yorkers who have to face down this violence. Maybe have a little humility before you tell a working-class person that it is the human right of a mentally ill, drug-addicted person wearing no pants to scream in their faces and wildly gesticulate at them every other day while they try to get to work so they can feed their kids. Or maybe we should better listen to Inez Felcher-Stepman, who writes up this. In an incident sadly familiar to many New Yorkers, 
A man living on the streets with a long history of mental illness started screaming, acting erratically, and threatening the people sharing his subway car earlier this week. I don't mind going to jail and getting life in prison, screamed the 30-year-old Jordan Neely, who had 44 arrests under his belt and an outstanding warrant for felony assault as he flailed around throwing items of his clothing, yelling, I'm ready to die. In response, a 24-year-old Marine Corps veteran put Neely in a chokehold, incapacitating him and releasing him after he stopped struggling and passed out. A freelance reporter who took video of the incident, one Juan Alberto Vasquez, told news outlets that no one on the train thought Neely was any worse shape than being unconscious. But by the time the police who met the train at the station took him to a nearby hospital, Neely was indeed pronounced dead. Police questioned the young man, whose name they did not make public, but released him without charges, pending an investigation. In the next 36 hours, the usual suspects suspects began to gin up the outrage machine. Readers online lambasted the New York Times for not immediately declaring Neely a murder victim and characterized the incident as having racist implications. Neely is black and the Marine is white. Governor Kathy Hochul declared the case troubling. AOC tweeted, Jordan Neely was murdered, and declared that funding the police is militarized and disgusting. By the end of the week, it's likely Jordan Neely will be on the front of every paper, forcing the country to consider whether erratic and threatening behavior from someone clearly out of his mind justifies the application of force in self-defense. In a famous 1984 case that made headlines at the peak of New York's last crime-ridden era, a jury was asked to consider whether pulling out a firearm and shooting four men in a subway car was reasonable, whether it was a reasonable response to being panhandled. The context, was it fair for Bernie Goetz to assume he was about to be violently mugged? One of the men, shot by Bernie Goetz, confessed from his hospital bed, that his three companions were, in point of fact, planning to rob Getz, calling him easy bait. Two of them were carrying screwdrivers in their pockets, but because because the would-be muggers were black and Getz was white, the case was painted by media figures and self-described radical lawyers like William Kunstler as the actions of a crazed and racist vigilante. Protesters stood outside the courtroom, chanting, Bernard Getz, you can't hide, we charge you with genocide. But during a record-breaking crime wave, the average American was sick of being told that his desire to go about his business without constant fear of violence and robbery was somehow illegitimate. A strong majority of Americans polled at the time supported Getz's actions, and fully two-thirds agreed he had acted in self-defense. Radio lines were inundated with calls pronouncing him a hero. Getz was acquitted of attempted murder by a jury that had been in that same subway car one too many times. A public fed up with having to accept muggings, stabbings, drug dealing, and general danger and disorder as an everyday consequence of living in the city. Six of 12 members of Getz's jury had themselves been victims of street crime. The breakdown of law and order and the revolving door of progressive policies that put criminals, the insane, and the drug-addled back on the street has cost New Yorkers their quiet confidence that they can go about their business in peace. Contra the chorus of scolding liberals online, many of whom turn out to be living in wealthy enclaves anyway, ordinary people are not content to be screamed at. 
threatened, spat on, and generally alarmed by often criminal lunatics, just one voice in their head away from a stabbing spree. If the state refuses to maintain the law and decent citizens have to accept fearing for their lives as the price of a commute, the steady flow of people and businesses away from states like New York aren't the only consequence. Jordan Neely never should have been in that subway car. He had more than 40 prior arrests and an active arrest warrant for felony assault. His death is not the fault of the brave young man who acted in his own defense and in the defense of everyone else around him, but on politicians and district attorneys who would rather chase plaudits from activist groups than maintain the most basic semblance of law and order. It is on those who give speeches about compassion but leave addicts and the insane on the streets to be a menace to themselves and others. It is, of course, possible that Neely's violent ravings could have resolved peacefully if everyone had sat there, terrified, trying to avoid contact until he wandered away. Or maybe not. A just society doesn't ask law-abiding citizens to bet their lives on that dicey judgment call. And it makes sure that a man like Jordan Neely is in jail or in a facility that deals with his violent and insane behavior humanely. The country has two choices as this case hits the national headlines. We can barrel ahead in our next summer of Jordan, paint murals of this unfortunate man's face from coast to coast and continue to create the atmosphere in which a thousand more Jordan Neelys will threaten a thousand more subway cars full of potential victims and victimizers alike. Or we can reestablish order, enforce the law, keep criminals in jail and commit the clearly insane. That is the common sense of the matter. That is the common sense of this thing. That is the common sense of this whole story, of which we will get more and more until we stop with the inhumane policies of continuing to allow the insane to roam and run our streets, our parks, and our trains. And when you're ready to get really serious about it, we'll probably need to take some cues from Mr. Neely's toxicology screening as well. And I'll lay you even odds, we'll never see it. But we can start being serious, or we can get starting used to not just violence, but more decadence, which is a fall from a vital state in its etymology. Vital, meaning life. In other words, we can survive and live, or we can listen to the coddlers and appeasers of violence, decadence, and die. As Adam Coleman put it, Everyone is debating when someone can or can't use a chokehold, but no one is willing to ask why Neely was on the streets in the first place. Might we ask that? Better. Might we answer it? Better still. Might we finally do something about it? I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. On the common sense of this thing, Adam Coleman, who I quoted at the end of the monologue, had a great column in Newsweek. He's the author of Black Victim to Black Victor, um, obviously an African-American. And he writes, one thing I've learned as an adult is that people who actually care about someone don't let them continually fail. Instead, they address that person's problems head on. Because people who care actually want you to succeed, and success often requires course correction. 
Progressives are currently beset by a sick reversal of that where no one is willing to address the root problems of the people they claim to care about because the people who are failing in our society are more suitable as political pawns and social commodities to exploit for attention and donation. Instead of addressing real problems like mental illness, violence, crime, homelessness, progressives are normalizing these things, gaslighting people who call them out as unacceptable and denouncing any attempts to truly rectify the problems that have our cities in a stranglehold. And they do it all in the name of compassion. The phenomenon has been on full display in the left's response to the sad killing of Jordan Neely this week. Neely was a homeless man with a long history of arrests who was suffering from mental illness. Neely tragically died while being restrained by a passenger on the subway after Neely was aggressively screaming at passengers. The story is horribly sad. Everyone seems to have failed Jordan Neely, as well as everyone in that subway car with him. But the incident has brought out the gross hypocrisy of those who claim to care about the indigent with a detail to satisfy every political appetite. Jordan is a black man who was killed by a white man. So let's bring out the term lynching because it'll always elicit racial animosity. If the racial angle doesn't work for you, you can always use Jordan's death to show the world how much of a do-gooder you are by exclaiming how the unhoused have a right to scream as much as they want in an enclosed space. You get to wag your finger at the three men who refuse to participate in the New York City tradition of keeping your head down, pretending these people don't exist, and praying that you don't become their target. And you get to accuse those who don't decry those men loudly enough for condoning murder. Let's be real. These people don't care about the homeless. The upper-class city dwellers of New York treat homeless people like bears in the wild. Don't make eye contact with them, and they won't bother you. When this strategy doesn't work, they gaslight you into accepting rampant squalor as not only normal, but progress. And when you vocalize your guttural displeasure with watching people live in filth and desperation, the self-appointed homeless whispers will manipulate you into believing this is just what city life is supposed to look like. They do everything to avoid addressing the issue and helping people recover to a normal life. And in so doing, they entrench the problem all while posturing as white knights. New Yorkers are supposed to just accept that New York's Penn Station looks like a scene from The Walking Dead. Wanting to do something other than accept the status quo of submitting an entire train station to drug addiction and suffering makes you intolerant for the left. Politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jamal Bauman will fire off a tweet about another black man dying or complain about rising rents, but it's just a precursor to drifting up a new round of donor emails. You know what they say, never let a crisis go to waste. Never mind that Ocasio-Cortez and Bowman could actually do something about homeless in New York. But to do something, they would have to actually care. And you know, you know they don't care because they don't act. And anyone who suggests that they should is cast as a heartless bigot. Everyone is debating when someone can or can't use a chokehold. And no one, as I said, is willing to ask why Neely was on the streets in the first place. The left's supposedly compassionate approach of letting the homeless just exist means not ever really contemplating what we've let the cities become. We've been trained to not look at the homeless people, but as inconvenient rats whom we need to quickly scurry past. They didn't just one day wake up at the feet of your subway station's chairs, but no one cares how they ended up at the bottom as long as their bottom doesn't interfere with the walking path. 
if any of these protesting progressives cared about Jordan Neely, they would care to understand his declining mental health after his mother was murdered and stuffed into a suitcase by his stepfather when he was 18 years old. They would attempt to empathize with the trauma of having to take the stand against the man with whom he shared a home with and comprehend how his own stepfather took the most important woman in his life from him forever. The man who went through that needed help. He needed an intervention from the state. Instead of admitting this, they brandished videos of Neely dancing like Michael Jackson and subway stations as if this activity is a sign of happiness and success rather than desperation and struggle. Would you tell your highly talented friend that dancing in the subway will get them very far? Of course not, but it's suitable for Neely because they really just don't care. If you want to know if someone cares, they'll be honest about what is happening around them and want realistic change. They won't pretend that everything is fine. They won't work extraordinarily hard to convince you that depravity is normality. But I don't think most people actually do care about Jordan Neely's life. They just care about what his death can do for him. And be prepared to see more of this and more death. Be prepared for it. Fox News did a really good profile on uh, homelessness and drugs in San Francisco yesterday. Jesse Waters did. I'm going to try and play it for you uh, when we come back. This obviously isn't just a New York problem, and it's obviously not just a San Francisco problem. We focus on those cities. I'm not sure why, but the problems, I guess, are equally bad in other places, too. Denver, Portland, Seattle, Chicago. Phoenix, we were really fortunate because it was beginning to be something. It was confined to what was called the euphemistically the zone where squalor was considered to be the normal state of things there, not a place you would go. Interestingly, a place every state lawmaker, almost every state lawmaker, had to drive by on the way to the state capitol every day, not doing a thing about it, because the mayor didn't want to do a thing about it, and the mayor didn't want to do a thing about it because the city council didn't want to do a thing about it, and the city council didn't want to do a thing about it, because too many people supporting the mayor and the city council didn't think it was the compassionate thing to do anything about it. Because, of course, the insane and the psychotic and the drug addict, drug addicted, of course the insane and the psychotic and the drug addicted are the best judges of what they need for themselves, right? Of course they are. Of course we should listen to them and not those of us who aren't them. Well, we we sued and we won and we are now doing something about it. I don't know if there's anyone in San Francisco or Portland or Denver or Seattle or New York City who can launch a suit like we did and can have the success like we did. We don't model success anymore. If we modeled success, our education system wouldn't be a shambles. And if we modeled success, our main and major cities wouldn't be dystopia. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Yes, as mentioned, uh, Jesse Waters did a really good uh, profile of the homeless problem in San Francisco. Um, 
rare is the time that I wish I could show you this, but this would be one of them. So I may have to describe a little bit of it as we go through the audio of it. But the audio of it, particularly from this fo- former homeless uh, uh, drug addict, is is so important that I did want to do my best to try and air it for you. We feel bad for everybody. Addiction's ugly. But these aren't kids on the streets. These are grown men and women who made a choice. And instead of getting sober and getting a job, they just want to shoot up all day on the sidewalk. It's not a secret. Homeless people, pretty open about it. Listen. There should be housing for you. I don't want housing. Then, so what do you want? Just to sit here then? Yeah. You should want better for yourself. I like it like this. I like the fresh air. What's your plan to get off the streets? I don't. um, I'm dedicated to a life of homelessness and poverty. He says, I don't have a plan. I'm dedicated to a life of homelessness and poverty, just in case you couldn't hear it. Once you're out here in the outdoors, it gets in your blood. And it's hard. I don't want to be in a stuffy room. I don't want to be in in a stuffy apartment building. But what you're saying is that right now, there's no housing you would accept. You prefer the outdoors. You prefer the streets. Yes, absolutely. So the guy just admits it. Even if the government handed him the keys to a beautiful three-bedroom apartment, he wouldn't take it. So the Democrats can just keep tossing money at the homeless problem. But unless you clean up the streets and force these people to change, it's never going to end. Tom Wolfe's a former homeless fentanyl addict and founder of the Pacific Alliance for Prevention and Recovery. So you were addicted and now you're not addicted, it's a choice these people are making. Yeah, and it's kind of an impossible choice because with fentanyl, uh, after a certain point, you really don't have a choice. You have to keep using, and you have to keep using every two hours. And if you're addicted to fentanyl, that's more important than just about anything else. In fact, drug addiction becomes more important in general than everything else, including a roof over your head. And you're going to choose that every single time over everything else. So if you're hooked on fentanyl and you don't take it, what happens to you? Well, you go into horrible, horrible withdrawals. You get really, really dope sick. I think that's the term that's used. Uh, and you'll pretty much do anything to get more, including, you know, you know, shoplifting, stealing, committing crime, whatever it is that you need to do to generate money so that you can get that fentanyl to get that fix. And if you're homeless on the street, that's a pretty hopeless existence. So when people are telling you, no, I just prefer to stay this way and stay on the street, uh, that usually the underlying uh, issue underneath that is drug addiction. And so we need to figure out a way to stop the drug addiction to give these people a chance at some hope and recovery. Well, it's up to each individual, is it not? I mean, we can't just keep expecting the city of San Francisco to fix it. They won't do anything right. It's got to be up to the individual. They're not victims. They're individuals that have choice. They have freedom. They have free will. So that's true. Uh, And they're also slaves to addiction, uh, which kind of complicates the issue. So the way I look at it is that there's a subset of people on the street that require intervention. That means we're going to have to go in there and not necessarily give them a choice, take them to get medical attention and put them into treatment to try to get them clean. And hopefully along the way, those people will find recovery for the ones that don't want to participate, that want to continue to live out there. You know, we as a community have to make a decision as a society has to make a decision what we want to do with that. Do we want to create shelters and put them in shelter, housing, whatever. But 
the street cannot be the permanent location for these folks to live because it's creating great harm to themselves and great harm to the community. How did you kick drugs, Tom? Well, I was held accountable. I had to go to jail for a few months to sober up, and then I went to a six-month six month drug treatment program, and that really changed my life. And so, like I said, there's a subset of us that need that kind of intervention, and so that's why I support, you know, the police department and the federal efforts that are going to happen in San Francisco to try to clean up the streets. We've got to get the drug dealers off the street. They're driving a huge percentage of this problem. We have over 500 organized drug dealers operating in plain sight in San Francisco. If you remove them, a lot of this other part of the problem that we're talking about actually goes away. 500 drug dealers roaming the streets of San Francisco that no one will do anything about. Streets of San Francisco. Who was that? Is that Carl Malden and Michael Douglas? I think so. Yeah. Not the same streets anymore. Welcome welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. That's the Streets of San Francisco theme song, I take it? Yes, sir. Streets, Michael Douglas. You know who was in there? Vic Tabak. Really? Vic Tabak, who... Were there any shows... He was in Alice, which I think Alice might have been the only show that was uh, supposedly that took place in Phoenix. Were there any other TV shows that took place in Phoenix that I'm missing? I think just Alice, if I'm not mistaken. I can tell you where most sitcoms were supposed to have taken place, like Mary Tyler Moore was in Minneapolis or Newhart was Bob Newhart was in uh, Chicago. I think Alice was the only one that's Phoenix. It's, don't worry. That's okay. Doug is in uh, Carefree. Hello, Doug. How are you? Hi, Seth. Um, I'll, I'll get right to the point. Is um, Many jurisdictions have put red flag laws in place. And so it's a pretty low bar. Someone complains, thinks you're mentally unstable. They come and confiscate your weapons, deny you a constitutional right. Um, but if you then say well, why don't we apply the same basic process to the uh, people that are on the street that are mentally unstable and potentially will do harm to themselves or others, um, the left loses its collective mind. And so it's just kind of, you know, and it's, you know, the due process, you know, for red flag laws is pretty, pretty janky, you know, but the due process. The left wants to ban guns, not drugs. Well, yes, but back to your point about if they really cared. Yeah, um, it, it shows that they don't because um, I volunteered um, for men's homeless shelters and for uh, people that were indigent when I lived down in Sierra Vista. And I would run into this guy, and sometimes he was lucid and okay, and other times he was, you know, just just dangerous to everybody and. Uh, you know, when we when we essentially uh, closed all the, uh, I'm not sure what you would call them these days, you know, centers for the criminally insane or whatever. The yeah, mental hospital. health hospitals or mental institutions, right. sure. Mental institutions. Yeah, mental health institutions. You know, you know, and I know the ACLU crowed and said they did a great thing for yep, society. But, sure. But, but they didn't do a great thing for the individuals that were, that needed that constant That's care. correct. And, 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 and who now, 
you know, whose life expectancy was probably diminished 80%, you know, because, you know, it's, it's an insane existence to, to live on the street. Yes, I mean, it is. The, the level of predation and, and, and deprivation. To themselves is, and others, you bet. Is legion. And so, you know, so it, is, is a compassionate society one that, that just puts the criminally insane, not criminally insane, but those that are... are insane, un- psychotic, insane. and likely to commit criminal acts as a result because they aren't in possession of their faculties. That's how it works. Right. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't see that as as compassion. I see that as I don't know. I don't have a good term for it. You know, it just seems like it's it's like. Well, it, it's enabling devastation and decadence is what it is. It's 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 enabling psychotic and criminal behavior, and sometimes psychotically motivated criminal behavior. That's what it is, Doug. It's enabling, and it's uh, it's not compassion. It's the opposite. It's cruel. It's cruel to the patient. Or, or the would-be or the need-be patient, and it's cruel to the rest of society that has to give up areas of civility to incivility. It's cruel to create... It, it's, it's cruel to create misery, Doug. And, it, you, you know, it, there's nothing compassionate about that, and I, I don't know any other way to say it except to highlight the policies of district attorneys and city councils that would rather turn a blind eye and deaf ear and justify their actions as it being the compassionate thing, all the while blaming the fact that there's not enough housing or affordable housing for people who, if you gave them their house for a dollar, would burn it down in a week. Housing is not the problem for this population. There, there are three categories of homeless my friend Jeff Taylor likes to point out. And you, you probably know them, and I don't mean to be Captain Obvious. So, but I do mean that we need to you know, be cognizant of what we're talking about when we do talk about homeless. There's the aged. Of course, that's an issue of housing and affordable housing. There's the people that you know are one paycheck away from the loss of a job and lost their job and it's now been a month or two and can't get a new one and have been trying. That's another category of housing. But then there's this, what we're talking about, what you're talking about. And that has nothing to do with housing being affordable or not. They don't even want the house, as you heard and as you will see. And if given it, they'll burn it. Nothing compassionate about that. Right. you, you gave me a good segue because, you know, it, it is a policy issue, and it's it's. I think it's designed to create chaos. Um, as a soldier, um, one of my jobs is to create chaos and prevent people from making good decisions. The the other side of the equation. I, I understand. Yeah, create chaos as an element of surprise or whatnot with the enemy. Right. Right, and so it's creating chaos, and it goes back to the 60s with, you know, Francis Fox, Piven, and the, the Clower and Piven book to create this societal chaos that essentially, you know, brings the society down around our ears. And it just seems like, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, all the left 
sit down at like a, you know, like a, a 40, 42 step meeting. And says, okay, <laughs> you know, okay, we're gonna, here's how okay. we do it. Yeah, right. You know, they so they had Sololinsky, they've had Obama, you know, and and now you know they <laughs> they have all of these NGOs and these you know not for profits that are you know piled up to the public trough of goodies and essentially the taxpayers are paying for their own societal destruction you know it's like the epa when they take when they bring fines in they they pass those fines on to the very people that are creating the environmental chaos yeah right and 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 so i think it's part and parcel to this homelessness crisis that we see that it's it's not I mean, while their narrative is we're compassionate, the reality is is we're. Oh yeah, no, it's another Orwellian term, replacing the phrase "cruel" with "compassionate." Yeah, no, absolutely, and half of that Orwellian turn speak, Doug, is committed by what you said the the Francis Fox Piven point of view. There's that. There's another sad angle to it too, which is based on NGOs and nonprofits that you know, need a population to fundraise off of and say they care about when all they care about is keeping their organizations running. Thank you, Doug, and thanks for your service. And thanks for your volunteer service as well. You know, if people serve in the military or first responders, cops, firemen, paramedics, we want to always thank them for their service. But, you know, if you're a volunteer in our community too, let me know. I want to thank you for that too. How's the economy doing for you right now with bank failures and stock market volatility and a recession on the horizon? Why Refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Think of that freedom. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. Why Refi is headquartered here lo- locally, and I encourage you to stop by their offices. They're over on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there. You won't get a sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign anything. And when you meet with the team at Why Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can too. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and as I say, you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. I thought it was important with Doug to just mention a little bit of those categories of homeless when we talk about them Um, because a lot of politicians will try – to confuse the issue. A lot of them will talk about the problem you and I are talking about and the problem Jesse Waters is highlighting and the problem that's really changing major cities and major streets and neighborhoods and cities. They'll try and confuse it as one of the two other categories, the, 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 the truly down on their luck and the homeless and the uh, aged. 
That's not what we're talking about. And those aren't the populations that are wrecking havoc on themselves or others either. That is not that population. I don't know if, uh, if we need red flag laws, as Doug was suggesting, to deal with that primary population. Um, it seems to me that delays a little bit all we really need which is to arrest people for breaking the law. And if in the process of the arrest we discover that they have a drug addiction or mental illness, if we screen for that, which we should, then we do for them what we did for the guy Jesse Waters was interviewing, Tom Wolfe, who would have never gotten clean, he said, if it weren't for his arrest. It's a story of a lot of people. If the arrest can get you to sobriety and sanity you know what i call that that's compassion three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.